Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Uh, You can find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 927. This morning, we're going to be picking up in verse 12, and we're going to be reading through verse 23. So Acts, chapter 18. The Medal of Honor is the highest decoration that can be bestowed on a member of the U.S. military. It is reserved for only the most extraordinary acts of bravery, where the recipient has gone above and beyond the call of duty in action against the enemy, even even at the peril of their own life. Uh, It's it's pretty common for the Medal of Honor to be given posthumously, uh, simply because the actions people do to earn them uh, usually cost them their lives. Of the 16 million Americans who served in World War II, only 472 received medals of honor. It gives you an idea of how rare it is. Only one of them, though, a man by the name of Desmond Doss, earned his medal without even firing a shot. Now, you may know the story of Desmond Doss. Uh, there's been a recent movie that's been made commending him, and it is, it's worth a watch. Doss was a combat medic from Lynchburg, Virginia, and as a Seventh-day Adventist, he he was a pacifist and a conscientious objector. He also worked in a shipyard, which made him a critical uh, component of the whole infrastructure, so he was waived from military duty. He didn't have to go. But although he received a deferment for military service because of his convictions, uh, Doss actually chose to join with the Army with the whole goal of being a combat medic. He refused in basic training to even touch a weapon, and that put him in conflict with his fellow soldiers. They saw him as a liability, and they despised him because of his faith. In fact, they did everything in their power to make him quit, even at the highest levels in his division. His commander was trying to get rid of him. So as during basic and during training, he was regularly enduring insults and mistreatment, but he always showed his fellow soldiers kindness and courtesy without showing a grudge or holding a grudge against them. It even came to the point at one point where he was court-martialed about it, but in the end, the court decided to allow him to serve. And as the unit went to combat, Doss continued to show extraordinary commitment to his unit just as he had in training. He routinely risked his life to care for his men. At Okinawa, his division was tasked with taking a 400-foot cliff. Just let that sink in for a second. And they did this by climbing up cargo nets. Now, when they first got up to the cliff, the initial attack was fairly successful, but then they were driven back by a fierce counterattack, and they were ordered to retreat. But even through the order, less than a third of the men who went up came back down. Ignoring the order to retreat, Doss actually stayed on the ridge, dodging enemy fire, sometimes being so close to the Japanese soldiers that were there and had complete control of the area that he could hear them talking. And he did this so he could treat his wounded comrades, and then he moved them by himself to the edge of the cliff where he lowered them with a rope down to the bottom. So he ended up in those actions in that day saving not five, not ten, but 75 of his fellow soldiers. Just imagine lifting someone, carrying them to the edge of a cliff, and dropping them down 400 feet 75 times. It's incredible. Doss did that and was not injured in the battle. When Doss was awarded the Medal of Honor, 
He said, I feel that I received the Congressional Medal of Honor because I kept the golden rule that we read in Matthew 7, verse 12. All things whatsoever ye would, ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. The thing that stands out about Doss's bravery is that it was driven by his faith. He did what he did out of love, despite the way that his men in the unit treated him. He did it because of faith in his commitment to Christ. And the men who ridiculed him for his faith ended up being saved by it. Faith is more than just belief in the truth. Faith is belief put into action. Faith trusts that God is true. It trusts that God is faithful. Faith produces love-filled obedience that goes into places of danger when fear says, don't do it, because it believes the power, the purpose, and the plan of God. Faith loves and honors God above self. And faith then leads us to love one another because it is grounded in the love that God first had for us. Faith, the author of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Such faith produces action. The apostle John tells us in 1 John 5 verse 4 that our faith is the victory that has overcome the world which Paul adds, makes us more than conquerors in Christ. And that's what I want to look with you, look at with you in as we can consider the message of Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 23. Uh, my aim this morning is to show you that what Luke has, from what Luke has recorded here about how we are to put faith into action, living with a firm conviction on the completed work of Christ for us. So if you would, please stand as I read from God's word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, at first glance, this passage appears to be little more than Luke's account of how Paul's travels 
leading him to go through Ephesus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Syria, and then back to Galatia ended up. But when we press into the details of this text a little more, it becomes clear that this is more than just a travelogue. We ended last week with considering the vision that Paul had received from the Lord, telling him to continue in his work in Corinth. Do not be afraid, the Lord told Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. When Paul was at his lowest, the Lord was there to strengthen him. He gave Paul a fellowship of friends who supported him as he worked. He brought Paul good news concerning the the faithfulness of the church in Thessalonica. And in this vision, the Lord brought ultimate encouragement to Paul, telling him to keep on going, promising to be with him, telling him that no one would harm him because he had many in the city who were his people. So as we come to verses 12 through 23, we get to see something of the faithfulness of that word given to Paul. God proves his word to Paul in a rather unexpected way, but actually in a rather extraordinary way. And I think this passage gives us a chance to consider how God calls his people to live by faith, entrusting ourselves like Paul did to the proved promises of God. And that really is the main idea of our passage that I want to show you this morning. As Christians, we live by faith on the proved promises of God. In our time this morning, I want to show you three ways that we're meant to live, live out our faith. First, we see that we're called to face our fear, face your fear. Second, submit to sovereignty. We live by faith by submitting to sovereignty. And third, we live by faith by honoring our commitment. Let's begin with this call to face our fear. Our God is with us to defend us. I don't know if you've picked up on the theme throughout the service so far, but the theme has been on God's protecting hand. The key thing to that, though, is that we are called to live in faith and obedience to God, and that brings us to places that make us face fear. When the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision that he received in Corinth, telling him, do not be afraid, do not be silent, keep on speaking, He did not tell Paul that he would be free of trouble. No, he told Paul that he was with him and no one would attack him to harm him. So Paul obeyed the Lord. He continued to speak about Christ. He continued to share the gospel. He continued teaching the word of God in Corinth for a year and a half, the longest that we see him staying in any of these other cities. The Lord had told Paul that he had many in the city who were his people. And we're told that many Corinthians who heard Paul believed and followed Christ. This did not sit well, though, with the leaders of the Jewish community who had rejected the gospel. And in verse 12, Luke introduces this whole new scene about how when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which is the region of Corinth, these Jews made a united attack on Paul to bring him before the tribunal, saying... This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So that's their charge. Now, the Lord had told Paul not to be afraid. He had assured Paul that he was with him and that no one would attack him 
to harm him. Luke means for us to connect that promise to what is happening here. And as we begin verse 12, it begins with this strong but, showing us that there's a conflict happening. But then also to tip his hand, to make sure we understand that the promise had, of the Lord had not failed, he actually uses a different word to describe this attack. It's not clear in the English, but in, in the Greek, there's two different words being used here. And that difference is really, I think, meant to emphasize to us from the very beginning that though these Jews in Corinth intended to do Paul harm, they were not going to be able to prevail against him. The Lord had promised that no one would harm Paul. And even as Luke recounts this attack for us, he wants us to see that God had a purpose in all of this, that he was in fact going to deliver Paul and no harm was going to come to him. Now, Gallio was an authority of the Senate. You have imperial authorities and you have Senate authorities. Gallio is a Senate authority. He's from Spain. Uh, he was actually related to the famous orator Seneca. And from the reports that we have about him in history, we know that he was, he was well-liked by all who knew him. He was a very amiable guy. You enjoyed spending time with him. He became proconsul of Achaia on July 1st in 51 AD, which kind of gives us a little bit of understanding about when Paul was in Corinth. He didn't last long in that position, though. He actually struggled a lot with illness, and so he was out of town quite a bit. So Luke goes to a little extra effort here to tell us about Gallio. He's told us about other proconsuls, but he mentions Gallio in by name here, and that, has, that actually has its purpose, as we'll come to see. But first... Let's look at the charge that's here. Luke says that the Jews, now that's likely the Jewish leaders who had rejected the gospel, um, that they had seized Paul and they had brought him to the tribunal or the judgment seat of Gallio. And they charged him with persuading people to worship God in a way that was contrary to the law. They're speaking of Jews and Gentiles here. Now, the Jews, as they bring this charge before Gallio, they really mean this in two ways. First, they meant that Paul was teaching people to worship God in a way that contradicted the law of Moses. They had rejected the gospel. They disagreed with Paul. And so, ultimately, that is their beef here. It wasn't true that Paul was teaching people in a way that contradicted the law of Moses. He was preaching, actually, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, in their hardness of heart, these Jews had rejected Jesus as the Christ, and so we see that they are opposing Paul and reviling him, trying to end him for what he's saying, using the, the arm of the government to do this. But they also meant it in a second sense. In the second sense, and pertaining specifically to Gallio, the Jews are here uh, intending for him to understand that Paul was teaching people to worship God in a manner that was contrary to Roman law. The Romans did not like the Jews, but they did permit them to be an exception to the, to the, to the empire-wide edict to worship the emperor. The Jews, by bringing Paul before Gallia, are saying that Paul is preaching a different religion, which was illegal according to Roman law. Again, this is not true. But it was how they represented Paul to Gallio, trying to bring criminal charges against him, trying to shut him up and get rid of him. Now, we need a, this is a serious situation. The Jewish leaders here are doing their very best to undo Paul, to discredit him in a court of law, and to make him to be a criminal. 
Galileo's verdict here is going to have major consequences for Paul, and not just for him, but for the church abroad. This is an official court case, which will set a precedent for proconsuls and judges in other regions and how to deal with Christians. So we need to understand the gravity of the situation here. I think Paul certainly did. In verse 14, Luke says that Paul was about to open his mouth to speak. He's, he's ready for this moment. He has been preparing for this. He's about to engage these guys. He's about to show that their charge is false. But as he opens his mouth to speak, something else happens. Gallio interrupts. And speaking to the Jews who are making this attempt, this conspiracy against Paul, he says to them, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Now, talk about a huge plot twist. The Jews had come charging Paul to be an enemy of the state. But Gallio sees through what they're doing. He actually shows quite a bit of discernment in this moment. He recognizes that this is an, an, an internal dispute between Paul, who is not preaching a different religion, but the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ, and these Jews who were rejecting the gospel that Paul had come to preach to them. As a secular authority, Gallio is still able to recognize that this is no matter for the courts of Rome to consider. He says that if this were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime being done by Paul, then he would have reason to accept the complaint. But this issue is nothing of the sort. And to the dismay of Paul's opponents, we see that Gallio throws the case out of court, refusing to be a judge in such matters. Now look, Gallio was no friend of the Jews, and he was, really, he was not a friend of Paul either. He's a secular authority who didn't want to spend his time in judging a matter like this. He's right, I think, to understand that he had no business in judging a matter like this. But we shouldn't mistake his response for friendliness. His tone, speaking about the gospel in verse 15, is really quite dismissive and condescending. He didn't consider such matters of theology worthy of his time. And to make that point final, Luke says that Gallio actually drove them all out from before the tribunal, literally throwing the case out and slamming the door on the issue. He is so resolved not to have anything to do with this that Luke says he pays no attention when the crowds grab Sosthenes, one of the rulers of the synagogue, and they begin to beat him in front of the tribunal. Now, this scene here, is, it's a little confusing because we don't know who's doing the beating. I have always read this as the Jews themselves beating Sosthenes, but other commentators read it as the, the, the Greek crowds. So it's hard to say. One way or another, there is some chaos happening outside, and Gallio is like, no, I'm done with this. Get out of my courtroom. Now, his response to this issue is important for us for three reasons. First, by throwing this case out, Gallio was doing something official. He had officially determined as a proconsul of Rome, as the acting arm of the Senate, which is no small thing, that the gospel was not a matter for the state to rule on. Paul had stood ready to make a defense for the gospel that he preached, but Gallio had dismissed the case before he even got a chance. By throwing the case out, Gallio was affording Paul and those who preached the same gospel as him a certain amount of legal confidence. 
The Jews who opposed the gospel would have been very foolish to try this case again. The second thing that is important for us to notice about this and, and his decision is, is simply that it proves something to us about the authority of God and his faithfulness to keep his promises. The Lord had told Paul not to be afraid, to go on speaking, assuring him that he was with him to protect him from harm. God did allow Paul to go before the court, but he did not allow Paul to be harmed in the process. And in fact, God reversed the intent of the enemies of the gospel, affording legal protection for Paul and for the church. Paul is home free here. He can preach the gospel as openly as he wants to in Corinth. There's been a path open through this court case. God did not fail on his promises. When we read verse 12, it looks like maybe the hand of God had slipped, but clearly that wasn't the case at all. What these enemies of the gospel meant for evil, God meant for good. Like water turned in the palm of one's hand, God turned the heart of Gallio to do exactly what he intended for him to do, bringing deliverance to Paul in a most unexpected way. The third thing we should notice about this and this whole event is that it is intended to teach us something of being free from fear in the face of any danger we may face for the gospel. The word of God never fails, and the power of God will always prevail. When our Lord says to us that he is with us to defend us, he means it. When we face difficulty in uncertain times, when it seems like from our own perspective that Satan has somehow got the upper hand here, and that maybe he will manage to prevail against the church this time. It is not because God has forgotten us. It is because he is at work to make the victory all the greater. Fear is one of the greatest enemies that we face as believers. Fear has a way of distracting us from the truth. It has a way of occupying our thoughts it has a way of corrupting our actions. It has a way of planting seeds of doubt that lead to acts of compromise. Fear has a way of seizing control in us, and Satan will do that if he can. If he can strike panic into your heart, he will. But as we look at Paul in the presence of his enemies before Gallio, we see that the only fear that is fitting for the believer is the fear of the Lord. God's hand of providence is all over this situation. Paul didn't even have to open his mouth. He didn't even speak. The Lord was with him, and he not only secured his release, but he paved a way for Paul to continue doing his work in Corinth with zero fear about what his enemies might try to do to him. Fear is an old master who those who are in Christ no longer serve. In Romans 8, Paul says, So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. So as followers of Christ, we live by faith, entrusting ourselves and our fears into the hand of our God. We strive to live obediently, not giving in to the threat of danger because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who has set his heart on us, and who has promised to prosper us in his Son by giving us eternal life in him. That brings us to our second point this morning, submitting to sovereignty. The eye of faith can look at this passage and see very clearly that it was the providential hand of God that was guiding the actions of Gallio in dismissing this case against Paul. After he was released, Luke says that Paul continued to minister in Corinth for many more days, but eventually his time in Corinth came to an end. It may have been tempting for Paul to stay in Corinth. After all, the Lord had demonstrated his power very clearly there. And we know from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church how deeply he loved and cared for them. But Paul was called to be an apostle to other places as well, and it was time for him to return to his sending church in Syria. Traveling back in Antioch was not, simple, not as simple as jumping on a plane, though. It's a long way from Corinth to Syria, and Paul had to make a few stops before he traveled back there. So Luke tells us that he sets off, and he doesn't do so alone. Priscilla and Aquila actually join him, first heading to the port city of Sincrea, which is about a two-and-a-half-hour walk to the east, to the coast, and then sailing from there to the port of Ephesus. Now, this trip to Ephesus is important. And if you've been following along in, in the, the story of the book of Acts, uh, you may have picked up on things are kind of coming together for us. Uh, this is bringing us full circle to the beginning of the secondary missionary journey. If you remember back in chapter 16, the Holy Spirit had not allowed Paul to go into Asia, which is where Ephesus was. He had taken Paul instead to Philippi and then to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and then to Corinth. Now we see the Spirit opening a door for Paul to come to Ephesus after all. And as he comes, a seed is planted here, which will lead to the planting of a church with the help of two new friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They will do some important work here. We'll be looking at some of that next week. And I think as we look at this, we recognize we have to see that it proves that God's timing is always perfect. Paul wanted to go to Ephesus originally, but the Lord had not allowed him. He had redirected his path, but now he's brought him here at the right time and at the right place. God's plan is always perfect. It is bigger than what we can see at any one time. And Priscilla and Aquila, as they come, they come to stay. Paul comes to plant a gospel seed and then continue on to other places. Each person, each set, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, they're playing a different role in the planting and the growth of the church in Ephesus. And that's just an important detail for us to keep in mind as Luke tells us about how Paul spent his time there. Now, once Paul came into the city, Luke says that he left them there, and he went into the synagogue and began to reason with the Jews. This is, this is Paul's MO. This is what he does when he comes into a new city. Priscilla and Aquila are there. They start to put down roots. Presumably, they, if they didn't already have part of their business there, they've opened their business here, and they are sticking around. Paul, though, Paul knows he's passing through. His aim is to go to Syria, and he uses his brief time in the city to testify about Christ to the Jews in the synagogue there. And as we'll soon see, God had a purpose for both of them. He actually had uniquely positioned them to do this work. 
Now, as we look at verse 12, it appears that the Jews in Ephesus actually respond rather favorably to Paul and his message. They, they want him to stay longer, presumably, so he can tell them more about Christ and about how he has fulfilled the Gospels. That, this is good. I mean, Ephesus is open, but Paul declines to stay. A little, a little interesting. Paul needs to keep moving. He needed to return east. And so rather than giving in to their desire, he tells them, I will return to you if God wills. Now, this is key to understanding why Paul is going and why Aquila and Priscilla are staying. It has to do with submitting to the will of the Lord. Paul needed to move on, but God did not leave the city of Ephesus without a faithful witness to the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila stayed. They set down roots, and in time, we will see how the Lord used them to support and host the church in Ephesus. It's clear to me that though God was leading Paul to return, to that, that though God had a purpose and plan eventually for Paul in Ephesus, he has a purpose and plan at this moment to bring him back to Jerusalem and then to Antioch. His work on the second missionary journey is done. And although it's clear to me that Paul would have liked to have stayed with the Ephesians if the Lord had allowed him, his greatest desire was to follow where the Spirit took him. It is worth seeing how God worked to keep Priscilla and Aquila here while Paul goes on this journey. He had an appointed purpose and plan for each of them, and they each submitted themselves to his leading. And the point we are meant to take from this is that as we live by faith in Christ, we need to live in submission to God's sovereign leaning. Leading. It's very easy for us to come to our lives with a certain presumption about the future. Planning is a good and virtuous thing to do. Good planning comes down to really being a faithful steward of our time and of our resources. It is wise. It is good. I know no better planner than my mom, and she's here. So I just want you to know, if you're a planner, I, respect, I have a lot of respect for you. At the same time, if you're a planner, it's important to remember that we are not ultimately in control of our lives, are we? Plans get changed. Budgets get wrecked. Trips get canceled. Planes get delayed, especially lately. Our world is more fragile than I think we'd like to think or even admit. Control belongs to God. The Bible explains to us that God is sovereign, not just over the grand scheme of the world, but over everything. He sets up and he tears down. He gives life and he takes it away. Living by faith means that while we make our plans as good stewards of our resources and what God has given us, ultimately, as we do them, we submit ourselves happily to God and his will, trusting that he will always do what is best. James puts it like this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You can hear Ecclesiastes speaking there. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is the Spirit of Paul's response to the Ephesians. Clearly, he desired to spend more time with them. Clearly, he intended to return. And yet, as he says this to them, he recognizes 
that ultimately God is the one in control. So his response shows a willingness to submit himself and his desire to God, to his sovereign will. While holding on tightly to Christ, we see that Paul held loosely onto his own plans. It's really easy to get bent out of shape in frustration when things don't work out the way we intend them to. I have struggled with that all my life. I suspect you have struggled with that yourself. There is nothing to get me quite so riled up as to be looking forward to something and to have it canceled at the last second. When plans get changed, sometimes I have to take a step back and just reset my expectations, especially if I really wanted to do that thing. Canceled plans and our response to them have a way of opening up a window into our own soul to show us our own selfishness. Then there's the issue of fear of losing or not being in control? Is there anything so debilitating as feeling that something in your life is beyond your control? That feeling of vulnerability, knowing that someone else holds your life, that is terrifying. But faith has an answer for that frustration and that fear. Faith leads us to submit ourselves gladly to the sovereign hand of God, who, who is never taken by surprise by anything whose plans never fail, who rules and reigns over all creation and always brings his good purposes to pass. Faith such as this trusts the promise of Romans 8, where Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So as we look at Paul, as we look at him speak to the Ephesians, as we think about how do I live by faith each day, we need to learn from Paul to plan but to prioritize the purpose of Christ above everything else, to submit ourselves to the sovereign hand of our loving Father. Whether our plan succeeds or fails, we can always trust that God is working all things together for our good and His glory. So as we seek to live by faith, we must aim to submit ourselves to God and His sovereignty. And that brings us finally to our last point, honor your commitment. Luke doesn't say precisely why Paul is so intent on heading back to Syria. Some scholars think that he's aiming to try to make it to Jerusalem in time for Passover. That's certainly a possibility. Another explanation that I think I find a little more compelling has to do with this vow he makes at Sincrea. It's a little detail. It's seemingly awkwardly placed at the end of verse 18, but Luke includes it, and it may be the key or understanding why he could not stay in Ephesus, why he was so intent to head back east. At some point while Paul was on his, this journey, it appears that he had made what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, was is, it was made either as an appeal to God or in, even in thanksgiving to him. In making the vow, a person would let their hair grow long, and they could not eat grapes or drink wine, and they could not touch anything that was dead. Luke doesn't say anything about when Paul made this vow, but I'm inclined to think that Paul may have made it as an appeal to God and all the dangers that he had faced on this journey. When a Nazarite vow was complete, a person had to cut their hair and then offer a sacrifice at the temple. They could cut their hair somewhere else, but the sacrifice that went along with this vow had to be offered in a timely fashion at the temple itself. Given what Luke says about Paul cutting his hair at Sincrea, I think that the reason Paul is so bent on heading back was to fulfill this vow at the temple. I think that's why he says, I can't stay, I have to go. 
There's really no other reason I can think of uh, that, that Paul would tell us. For, there's really no other reason, I think, for Paul to tell us that Paul got a haircut. This is further supported, I think, by verse 22, where Luke tells us that Paul did not, although he's heading to Syria, he does not directly head to Antioch when he comes into port. Instead, Luke says that Paul went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Most scholars agree that we're meant to understand Luke is saying that Paul traveled to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And he greeted the church there, paid his vow, and then headed back north to Syria. Uh, Jerusalem is at a high level, and usually whenever you're reading in the scriptures, you'll see someone goes up to Jerusalem and then they go down. So this, we, most scholars agree this is Luke using some shorthand to tell us he went up to Jerusalem to pay the vow and then headed down to visit the church in Syrian Antioch, where he stayed for some time, probably the winter, before heading back to Ephesus through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples who were there. Now, whether Paul went back to Jerusalem for the Passover or whether he went back to fulfill this Nazarite vow, which I think is more likely, Paul shows us something of the priorities of his faith here. There were so many more convenient paths that Paul could have taken to revisit the church in Antioch or the churches in Galatia, but he made a point here to travel to Jerusalem even when it meant leaving Ephesus, not knowing if he would ever return. Paul's priorities were driven by his commitment to the Lord. He counted his commitment to Christ to be his greatest thing. He kept his vow. He honored his commitment to the Lord. Living by faith is more than just doing what God commands. You can obey the laws of the state and not like it. The state doesn't care. But honoring living by faith Living by faith in God requires us, first and foremost, to love God and to obey Him. Living by faith means being committed to Christ as our greatest treasure. That commitment isn't always convenient. It isn't always safe. But Paul shows us that the effort is worthwhile. When it comes down to it, living by faith is really living in a right response to the faithfulness of God. He is patient and long-suffering. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He shows steadfast love to thousands. He forgives iniquity and sin, yet he does not clear the guilty to violate his justice, but he upholds perfect justice in all his judgments. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The scriptures call us to honor our commitments, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If we are truly children of God, his faithfulness ought to be reflected in our own commitment to him and to our own word. How can we reflect God faithfully to the world around us if we are not faithful in our commitment to him? Love and honor are virtues that are cut from the same cloth. We honor what we love. We honor when we love. God is worthy of our love and our honor. As we live our lives, we're called to do so in love for him. And that calling also means that we're called to honor him. Paul's a really good example for us about what it means to prioritize our commitment to Christ and what that looks like as it plays itself out in our lives. God is not merely part of our lives. He is our life. He is not part of our story. We are part of his. And when we view life that way, we're able to stand against fear. 
we're able to submit ourselves gladly to God and his plan for us. And the world around us gets to see the wonder and the glory of God in the face of Christ. Friends, the promises of God are proven. They stand secure on the rock of Christ. Although the path of God, although the path that God has called us to may take us through every sort of danger, we do not have to fear. No harm can ultimately come to the man or the woman who has trusted in Christ. Because we have already died, our life is not our own, it is Christ's. So brothers and sisters, let's face fear by submitting ourselves to God and his sovereignty. And let's honor our commitment to him, trusting that he is always faithful and always true. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you this morning for the way that you have honored Christ in the world by sustaining Paul in the midst of his trial and hardship. Lord, as we, as we look at this, and it seems almost like the situation got out of hand, like maybe that promise wasn't true. And yet, Father, you worked in your sovereign will not merely to dismiss the case against Paul, but to sustain him and to work in and through him to allow many more to hear the gospel and to come to faith. Lord, help us as we read about this, as we think about this, as we meditate on this in the week, to take this with us into our lives. There's so many things, Father. I've often said that I, I can think of a thousand ways you might fail me, but I cannot think of a single way that you have. And Father, I pray that you would establish your people here and now in that faith, that you would give us a faith that prioritizes the work of Christ, that faces fear, that submits to your sovereignty, that rejoices in your love, and commits to honoring the commitment that we have in him. And Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ask, Father, that that commitment would be on our minds and that it would be our confession. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.